Welcome to the Clifford Chance podcast, where our experts discuss energy transition projects in Asia Pacific, focusing on wind projects. I'm Christian Maley. I'm counsel at Clifford Chance, and I work mainly on major energy resources and infrastructure projects in Australia and Asia. And I'm Michella Stokel. I'm also a counsel at Clifford Chance based in Singapore, and I work on the transactional side of clean energy projects in the Asia Pacific region. And I'm Tom Capel, Senior Associate in the Projects Team here in Singapore. I specialise in offshore ENI projects. We're kicking off this series with a discussion about wind projects in Asia Pacific. We'll first look at the current state of play for these projects in the region and then have a closer look at procurement and where the industry is heading in terms of structuring these projects. So to kick things off, Tom, can you set the scene for us? What is the state of play for wind projects in Asia Pacific? So the big picture story, I think, is one of growth. Um, you know, we're looking at a trillion dollar industry over the next decade. Um, in 2021, we saw 21 gigawatts of installed OSW capacity, which was three times more than 2020. Um, and that was primarily actually driven by China, which this year surpassed Europe as the biggest offshore wind market. In the APAC region, offshore wind is probably the most scalable clean energy resource. Um, you know, you're looking at your key OSW jurisdictions such as Taiwan, Japan, Korea, China, and, um, you know, Australia coming to the fore. All of these jurisdictions are blessed with long coastlines and suitable wind conditions. Um, you know, the growth is coupled with a rapid expansion of announced ambition for offshore wind globally. So the collective increase in ambition is taking headline targets for offshore wind close to 380 gigawatts by 2030, which will require around 70 gigawatts more of installations per year. And the key question facing us in the industry is how to narrow the gap between installations and targets. So developers and suppliers and contractors are all basically working as, as fast as they can by the sounds of things to keep up with demand. How does that impact on the commercial dynamics in the industry? So as I mentioned, the, the big picture story is one of growth, but if we zoom in a little and look at the here and now, the story is one of problems and potential. And whether you view the immediate opportunities positively, I think depends on whether you're a glass half, glass half full person or a glass half empty person. You'd have seen the, the headlines, um, the world's biggest wind power projects are in crisis just when the world needs them most. Um, looking at the UK, um, we're seeing major projects have been stalled or, or otherwise delayed. Um, on the flip side, you know, offshore wind is a falling cost story. The cost per megawatt hour is the key metric that developers are looking for. And over the last 10 years, the cost per megawatt hour of fixed bottom offshore wind has dropped by around 60%. As turbines have grown in size, costs have plummeted. So it's, it's a basically becoming a more productive energy source. Um, but it's a tough one for developers in, in APAC at the moment. Um, you know, looking at the, the spread of OEMs, globally there are around 16 OEMs um, active in the offshore wind sector, of which 10 are based in China and, and not often seen, to be honest, on internationally developed projects. Um, and we're seeing an ongoing consolidation within the market of, of fewer OEMs active across the supply chain, especially those in, in floating offshore wind. Um, and the issue here is clearly that there's a lack of competition, which has led to a really hot contractor-friendly market. Um, so essentially, the explosion in offshore wind activity means that demand is outstripping supply. And particularly in this region, and perhaps Taiwan is the prime example, you can see how local content requirements have really caused bottlenecks and challenges for developers in being able to keep construction on track. And local contractors are really struggling to deliver on timescales considered fairly par for the course um, by, by seasoned international contractors. 
We're certainly seeing that local content piece play out in Australia now with uh, the de developers nervously waiting for um, the local content requirements for their new Victorian um, offshore project. Uh, aside from the, the micro um, challenges, what about the macroeconomic challenges, Tom? It's a, good, it's a good point. And there's clearly macroeconomic challenges at play here as well. You know, whilst not unique to the offshore wind industry, um, the current disruption globally to prices is clearly impacting suppliers and contractors' approach to both contracts in, in negotiation and execution. Um, and, and we're seeing that firsthand on, on the projects we're handling across the region. Um, and, you know, the financial turmoil over the last couple of years on a global scale has, has increased costs for developers. The cost of steel has increased by 50% from 2020 to 2021, and that's led to increases in the cost of turbines to the tune of around 15 to 20%. And ultimately, those cost increases are being passed on to developers, um, which is also leading to increased costs in, in financing. Um, and you can see in the, the financial results of the leading OEMs, the margins are so fine and the costs are so great. So it's not surprising that a supply chain crunch is manifesting in contracts as pushing the boundaries of precedent risk allocation. And how are you seeing these dynamics play out in the context of ever bigger and presumably more expensive projects? Yeah, so we're seeing larger projects, deeper waters, larger turbines. There's ultimately more risk for contractors and more value at stake for developers and financiers. One, one prime example we're seeing is the strain put on projects in terms of securing an increasingly specialized marine spread. There's a severely limited regional and global availability of key marine spread, which, which is basically your heavy lift and jack up vessels. And there's now global demand for these vessels, which Asian projects are having to contend with. So for example, um, looking at the boom in American offshore wind, for example. This is a key piece of the procurement package that's unfortunately not often placed at the center of the procurement story, but really should be. If we look at early stage projects in Asia, um, we saw contractors such as the turbine suppliers take T&I risk and secure the installation vessels. But given the difficulties in securing these vessels for increasingly long installation periods, you know, some of which might span multiple weather windows, that risk is now being put onto developers. Tom, so that trend of uh, the shifting vessel responsibility between contractors and owners really fits into the broader question of, of procurement structures on wind projects. And that, that's the second topic for today. So, so shifting gears onto that second topic, Marcella, when we talk about procurement structures, what do we mean in, in general terms? What are the options for wind projects? Thanks, Christian. I think the Taking a step back, the, the real quick key question is, are we about to enter a golden age of disaggregated procurement or multi-contracts, lots of contracts, or will there be a push towards a greater degree of consolidation of construction and procurement? This is going to be a particularly key question for those markets exploring offshore wind for the first time, like Australia. I think that the answer to this is there isn't an answer. There's a real fluidity of approach. Offshore wind is certainly not a sector where there is a one sort of single right answer um, or a fixed solution, even necessarily at the start of the procurement phase. It is not uncommon for us to see owner developers embark on one structure and then look to change mid-course as they go through the tender and even the negotiation phase. To a certain extent, this is a fact of life, but changing midway through can be difficult and expensive, especially if project finance lenders are involved. So making the right structural decision at the outset is a key decision. 
Um, on the structures, we used to show clients sort of a spectrum with the well-trodden single point turnkey EPC approach for those construction lawyers listening on the one side of the spectrum. So typical for, say, the conventional power sector, the paradigm project finance, time certain, cost certain, fully wrapped design and construction contract. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we would show the disaggregated multi-contract procurement structure. If we think about offshore wind, practice really dramatically differ differs between onshore and offshore wind, and that's something to emphasize today. So for onshore wind, it's a much simpler story, either a single contractor on an EPC basis doing the whole of the procurement or a two contract balance of plant turbine supply structure. But for the offshore wind industry, it's historically been dominated by disaggregated procurements featuring lots of contracts, typically for a key component breakup like turbine supply, foundation solution, cabling solution, and the offshore substation package. The reasons for this range from, you know, resistance by equipment manufacturers or OEMs to take risk on other contractors, a lack of specialism, particularly as the the projects get bigger and bigger to wrap the turbine and the full balance of plant. Um, risk appetite of project finance lenders getting more comfortable with disaggregated schemes and also a deliberate choice by owners and developers to use disaggregated structures to optimize costs and against lower subsidy pricing. You know, in other words, to avoid the risk premium often associated with EPC contracting. Disaggregation does carry inherent consequences and risk, um, and we'll be looking at those in more detail in the next episode of our Energy Transition podcast series. Thanks much, Ella. And so you've described this this general trend across the region, but um, there are some differences in different ju jurisdictions from what I understand in, in terms of offshore wind procurement. Yes, um, it's it's certainly an, a sort of an evolving approach around the region. We're working a lot at the moment in Taiwan, and Clifford Chance worked on the first Taiwanese projects, Formosa 1 and Formosa 2. On those, we saw disaggregation, but it was a reduced level of disaggregation, sort of three to five main contracts. What we're seeing at the moment is a wider degree of disaggregation, 12, 15 package contracts, and increasingly challenger set challenging assessment when we're advising project finance lenders. Um, the other trend we're seeing is in addition to the vertical disaggregation between the components, so the turbines, foundations, cables, offshore substation, which I mentioned a moment ago, we're also seeing significant horizontal disaggregation within the supply chain for those components. Um, so this is something we haven't seen before frequently. Um, and a good example, if you take the foundations, it would be a split out of the design under a separate design appointment, a split out of fabrication, maybe pin piles and jackets. And then as Tom was mentioning, a split out of the transportation installation and vessel piece. If we then look to Japan, Korea, two other markets that we're, we're working in at the moment, there are some nuances. They haven't gone down the road of Taiwan, at least at the moment, bearing in mind that the offshore wind sector in those countries is quite new. And we are seeing in Japan and Korea a bigger push back towards consolidation of the construction procurement structure. Um, so rather than a higher degree of disaggregation, we're looking we're looking at sort of two package or three package structures in those jurisdictions. What are we seeing in Australia, Christian? I, I 
appreciate I've touched on Taiwan, Japan and Korea. It's a very exciting time for offshore wind in Australia because the sector is very much at an emerging stage. We've got the world's leading offshore wind developers now based in country here in Melbourne. And we've also got a bit of a benefit of being a late adopter. So we can apply the lessons learned elsewhere in the region here in Australia. Aside from project structuring, which we've discussed, Australian governments are engaging really constructively about the local content requirements here. So we're hopeful there'll be less of a challenge than in some other places. The developers, I think, are also very alive to the difficulties of trying to do too many things at once. This is especially exciting for us here at Clifford Charts, given that we've worked on so many of these large projects across the region, especially in Taiwan and Japan and Korea. And I'm sure we'll be playing similar roles getting these complicated projects developed here. In terms of onshore projects, single point EPC contracts are still widespread. There is a much greater focus on risk allocation from contractors, though, in terms of both what risks they're willing to accept and also with some contractors pushing for greater disaggregation. This is pretty understandable, I think, given the broader economic and supply chain challenges we've discussed. But in Australia, the construction sector has faced some specific challenges in recent years in terms of contractor cash flow and profitability, which are also feeding into these dynamics. Marcello, if I can ask you to pick up your crystal ball for a moment uh, and, and turning back to Australia, how do you think uh, offshore wind project structuring will play out in Australia as we, uh, as we cast our gaze off the coast? Picking up my crystal ball, I think, um, I think Australia will look to the region. We have a supply chain already growing in the Asia-Pacific region, so they'll look for inspiration in the region. But I think there is a distinction to be made between, as Tom was saying, Taiwan, where we're seeing, you know, 12, 15 upwards packages, to remember that at the beginning of the Taiwanese story, it did start with a more conservative procurement structure of, of three contracts. And I think I think it will be a similar way Australia will navigate through these waters, no pun intended, they'll sort of start smaller, more conservative, get the project financing into the market. And then when they have got their confidence, they'll look to disaggregate even further and bring costs down. Well, Australia is definitely playing catch up and we've got a lot of work to do uh, as we get up to speed with the region. On our next episode in our series on the energy transition in Asia Pacific, we'll move forward to the construction phase of wind projects and focus on some key risks and pitfalls to be aware of and what can be done to mitigate them. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and follow us on LinkedIn.